one of those songs, I mean, it's got victory written all over it, doesn't it? I love that line, uh, darkness basically stood there thinking heaven had lost. And I, I, now I'm kind of shallow. Every time I hear that line, I think of every movie I've ever watched where the bad guy's standing on a bridge with all his bad guys behind him. And there's this little ragtag group out front that looks like they're going to get wiped out, just wiped out. And they have no idea, evil has no idea what's about to hit him in the face. This past week felt a lot like that, didn't it? Felt like death had won. And we sit there wondering, what in the world are we going to do? That little ragtag group of people, what are we going to do? And we start coming up with all of our lame ways of fixing it and everything else. And we forget that there's a Savior who already fought the battle. It's already won. This is just mop-up time. This is just mop-up time. So, oh my goodness, I, I'd like to do it again, but I really do want to do this sermon. So thank you so much. That was, that was amazing. It's so, I love that song. Go sit. You guys, here at church, sit down, relax. So uh, we, Kim and I, ladies' retreat ended last week. It was a fantastic retreat, great time. I was there serving food, catching things along the way. A lot of people grew. A lot of people loved the time. And the uh, room was decorated really beautifully. And as decorations are coming down, I said, I want to keep part of the decorations. I want to keep, I want to keep these streamers. Some of you are looking at them going, we're selling cars and what's going on here? I'm like, it's Lent. It's the season of the white flag. White flags mean what? Surrender. I give up. I give up. It is only when we finally are able to say spiritually, I give up, that anything happens. We keep thinking we can fix it, we can solve it. One more book, one more seminar, one more happy thought. We'll get it fixed. I give up. And so as you walk in throughout these weeks leading up to Easter, I want you to look at those white flags and ask yourself, have I given up? Am I giving up? Am I willing to surrender whatever it takes in order to have the life in God that he desires for me? In order to experience the holiness and wholeness that only he can give me. And it will only happen when I give up. Now a lot of times for Lent we, we kind of do a special reading during this season that leads us to the cross. And, and uh, we're going to keep on track with what we've been doing for communion. Which is uh, going through these questions, the 21 questions that John Wesley laid out to the people who, were, who he was discipling. And uh, it, it's actually found in a book called The Wesley Challenge. You're supposed to be able to do it in 21 days, but we're, we're kind of slow. So we're doing it over the course of a whole year instead of just 21 days. We've gone through a few questions so far, soul-searching questions. And the question we move to today is, did the Bible live in me today? Did the Bible live in me today? Now, the easy question would be what? Did you read your Bible? Yes. Gold star. No. Well, go read it. A lot of people are really good at, you know, reading through a one-year Bible, getting through, plowing through, checking off the checks, and getting all the boxes done. I read the Bible. Great. So what? Did the Bible live in me today? Not did I read the Bible, but in a real sense, did the Bible read me? 
Did I just collect information? And I don't ding information. We need information. You don't want a faith founded on fluff. But information is not the ending point. Information is the fuel for transformation. And so the question is not just, did I read my Bible? Do I know where my Bible is? But did the Bible live in me today? Now, this author has a really practical suggestion. And I, I, you may think it's cool. You may think it's crazy. He says, in order to kind of reinforce this question, again, we'll come back to this again next week. I'll read what he says. Keep a Bible with you at all times today. Now, Bob, my tech guy, said, can it be my phone? No. Keep a paper Bible with you <laughs> at all times today. Let it serve as a reminder of God's desire to be with you in every moment of your day. And when you have a few free moments, use them to engage Scripture. I wonder what would happen if we physically took this with us throughout the day. I know some of you are thinking, I can't do that. I, I use a hammer at work. I, you know, can't be holding my Bible. But if this thing, what if this thing was sitting on the seat next to me as I'm driving to work, the way I normally drive to work, and instead I kind of turn and say, so am I, am I driving the way this book would recommend? Uh, that, that's what it means. Am I living out what it says? How did the Bible live in me today? So that's our question. We'll uh, stop now and reflect on it for a minute in silence. And then we'll move to one of four places around the room. Two that are lit in the back of the room, two with candles up front, where communion is available to you, bread and cup. Take one of each. You can either stand there at that cross and take communion in that moment or take communion back to your seat and continue to reflect. Just reflect on this question. Um, how is the Bible living in me? So Kim and I <clears throat> spent a few days away enjoying what one might call a, a geezer vacation, which is uh, stay in your room, be quiet, sleep, and eat. Coma. I like coma. It's good. And one of the things we, we do when we uh, do a coma vacation is we try to avoid the real world at all costs because it seems like the real world has a way of disrupting a coma. Uh, but, of course, we... Uh, clicked through stations one day and found that you, there was another, yet another unthinkable tragedy, unthinkable tragedy in our nation. Kids uh, dead. Teachers protecting kids dead. And um, I, I you know, come to the point with all this stuff. I don't know if you have a routine already, but I do. A routine that goes something like this. The shooting happens and I just turn everything off because it's become so mind-numbingly predictable. Politicians positioning, whichever station in the news you like, 
throwing out its propaganda, and Facebook wars up and back about the best way to handle things. And I just can't help but think that there are 17 families this morning, some who showed up at church and they're not sitting with their daughter or their son or dad. They're not sitting with someone they assumed would be there next week. And I really think the best thing that we can do as people who love Jesus and follow Jesus and believe the songs we sang today is to hold them in the presence of God. Just hold them there. And know that he alone can offer them the healing, hope, and help that they need in this moment. And so I thought we'd take a minute again to just be quiet in prayer. You may want to literally do it physically. Hold your hands as if holding someone. Maybe you heard a name. Maybe you can picture a face. Maybe you heard a story. But right now, hold that person in the presence of God. Pray for their comfort in their moment of sorrow. Pray for their help in their moment of tragedy. Father God, help us to be less quick to posture and position and much more quick to come into your presence and cry for help. To cry for help for our nation that desperately needs you as it further and further walks away from you. To cry out for help to help, to cry out for help for people who are grieving a level of grief that is unimaginable. Help us to be people who realize the best thing we can do is talk to you on behalf of others to hold them in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So, it may be obvious to you, I like to cook and I like to eat. And actually, cooking started when I was a little kid, all right? Cracks me up when I think about it. I was a preteen when I started cooking meals for my family. I can only imagine how mushy some of that macaroni must have been and other things that I prepared as a, as a kid who had not even hit my teenage years yet. Now, if you're interested, if you cook consistently, you develop certain habits. It just happens. Nobody, nobody tells you to do these things, you just do these things, you don't even realize you do them. In fact, you give them no thought until someone asks you, why do you do that? Or someone mocks you, <laughs> why do you do that? Whatever, they, they, they kind of call attention to your habits. So here's one of my cooking habits. Let's say I'm making soup or, or chili or, or stew. I get out the cutting board and my sharpest knife at the moment, and uh, I, I get the vegetables there and I start to chop them up. It, it almost always involves an onion, gotta have an onion. If it's soup, it's likely to have celery and carrots and potatoes, probably some minced garlic. It's got all those pieces. When it comes to adding them to the pot, I take the cutting board over to the pot, whether I'm going to saute them or it's just going straight into the mix, whatever it is, I take them over and with my hand, I scoop the vegetables into the pot, get them on in there. But I don't end there. I, the, this is where the habit comes in. I'm, I'm frugal, okay? 
Uh, frugal meaning nothing should go to waste. I didn't grow up in the depression, but when it comes to food, I act like a depression child. So once I have scraped with my hand, I go over and get the knife, and I scrape, and I scrape, and I scrape, and I scrape again. I make sure everything gets in there. No tiny piece of diced onion or minced garlic is going to avoid its destiny as my dinner. It all goes in. I make sure every last little bit gets in there. So we came out of the gate in 2018 with a series on discernment. And John did a, a fantastic job last week, wrapping it up and putting a bow on it. He taught us the ways in which the Bible teaches us discernment, especially when it comes re regarding good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness, uh, wrongdoing, sin. So as we soak in the word, we learn how to tell the difference between right and wrong. And we also learn the way wrong works. We might expect it to kind of jump us by surprise, but more often than not, sin is a slow, steady process of desensitivity. It is a plotting progression, not a sudden leap. And for you today, you heard that sermon and you're expecting today that we are done. We should be done. In fact, the, the podcast will say that John's was lesson six of a six-part series. Done. However, I found a few diced onions on the cutting board. And I couldn't resist scraping them off and putting them in the pot. So we're going to call this a bonus track. Okay, this is kind of, this is an extra one just for you. Totally free. Okay? Um, I want to get real practical, real, real practical about discernment. What does it look like for us to walk a walk of discernment in everyday life? And the beautiful irony is that our soul question, soul care question this week is, did the Bible live in me today? That's a discernment question. Is the Bible so absorbed into my life that I have learned how to reflexively think biblically. A truly discerning person is a person who thinks biblically. They get so soaked in the word and the word gets so soaked in them that they instinctively begin to have biblical reactions, biblical responses, and biblical uh, reflexes. So let me go back one more time to this definition we've been working with. It came from a teacher named Ruth Barton. She wrote, discernment is the capacity to recognize and respond to the presence and activity of God, both in ordinary moments and in the larger decisions of our lives. We develop this, this instinctive ability to see God in it. We, we know, we know that God is. We know that God is present. We know that God is active and that God has desires he longs to fulfill in us, through us, and for us. Reading the Bible is vital for this. Allowing the Spirit to guide us and teach us eternal truth is essential. And as we grow and read, we place ourselves under the authority of the Bible and allow its truth to shape our lives in incredible and in intimate ways. The divine power of God's truth causes us to grow in our faith and allows us to gain insights into holy living and into how to live whole lives, the way God intended for us to live. Now, for all of us, a shift needs to take place. For many of us, we turn to the Bible initially for information, for facts, for knowledge. We, we want to know what's in there. That's where we start, and that's an important starting point. We've got to start by knowing, but we can't stay there. The Bible is not simply a resource for information. It is an active and powerful means of transformation. It wants to change, take us beyond knowing to a new way of being. 
some might label the shift this way. We go from reading the Bible to letting the Bible read us. It is critical for us that the Bible shapes our thinking, but it is also very important that it shapes our being. So not just our thinking, but our being. And as the Bible shapes our being, as we experience spiritual transformation, our doing is shaped. You see how it works? So we go from thinking to being to now what we're doing. The Bible is about inspiring all that we are, our, our heads, our hearts, and our hands, every part of us. So over time, we move from thinking about the Bible to thinking biblically, to living biblically, to acting biblically, to responding biblically. Let me stress, as I did several teachers ago, this is something all of us can do, every person in the room. This is not reserved for pastors or priests or religious professionals. Everyone can grow as a thinker. But sadly, many do not. They just don't. This is what the writer of Hebrews bemoaned in his epistle. In chapter 5, beginning with verse 11, he said, There is much more we would say, like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be able to teach others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. What he does is lay out this basic formula. Training plus time equals maturity. Training plus time equals maturity. It, it works like clockwork. What's training? He said, who through training have the skills to recognize the difference between right and wrong? Well, that's the, that's the classic definition of, of discernment right there. The ability to know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And then he says, time, you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teachers. He just recognizes this natural fact that if you're training over time, you will grow to maturity and be able to teach others. Now, if you think about it, this applies to just about everything that matters in life. This is the way it works. Training, time leads to maturity. In other words, if you put in time doing something over time, things are going to happen. But there's one thing you need to know about this formula. While it works, it doesn't always feel like it's working while you're practicing it. You feel like you're just going through emotions. You're like, am I growing? Am I changing? Am I becoming better? If you think about it, this happens all over life, right? I mean, physically, physically, how did I get here? One donut at a time. You know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a day of binging, a donut, a donut, a donut, and donut, and before you know it, you look like a donut. That's the way it works. Um, we get in marathon shape over a season, not in seconds. It takes time. I could go on. I think you get the point. Training is vital, but there is no quick path to the destination. This, in part, is true with discernment because it grows much like wisdom. It grows through observation and experimentation and experience over time. So, touch a hot stove once. Ouch! Some will try again. Ouch! A few even go for a third. Ouch! 
in time you gain enough discernment to know, I put my hand here, I'm going to get burned. Discernment grows as we apply what we know from the Bible to what we see in everyday life. All this to say, stick with it and don't get discouraged. Spiritual growth works a lot more like a crock pot than a microwave. It takes time. Now, sometimes comparing gets us discouraged as well, right? We're in a journey group with someone who just seems to get it. I mean, the leader asks a question, and, and if we could show the screen of your mind, there'd be lots of white and crackle. And the person next to you always has the answer. And the answer is good, and you're like, I want to be like that. Come on. And we compare, and we start to feel defeated. This would be no different than downloading the Couch to 5K app, doing the first two weeks faithfully, and wondering why we cannot run as fast and as far as David Michelle Barnes or Jason Barton or any number of our church runners. These guys and ladies have been slogging it out for years. And they started where you're starting. First step, first week, first mile. Now, let's say, on the other hand, we've been in the faith for 25 years. And our sole source of training has been Sunday morning. Intake alone. Nothing else. No private reading. No groups. Nothing. We need more than that. We need more than that. that. That's just showing up at the gym. We need more than that in order to get the training that we need. And again, I want you to feel discouraged, but I hope you will feel challenged. We need both time and training. And it is never too late to start training. One of my heroes around here is, is Terry Lennon. You know why? This guy refuses to stop growing. I mean, when I was 20, I thought, if I live to be 70, I'm putting it in neutral and coasting. I've finally arrived, right? Not Terry. Terry keeps going and going and growing and growing. It is never too late to train. And training over time leads to tremendous spiritual maturity. So let's talk about a few things a biblically trained mind understands. If you're, if you're in this training process, if you're getting the training and the time, the maturity is coming, these are some of the things that a mature person, a, mature, a spiritually mature person starts to grasp. The first is this. All truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. I remember the first time I heard that line sitting in a classroom at Cedarville College, my professor quoting a Bible scholar named Frank Gabeline. I'm not sure if he was the inventor of the phrase or not, but he wrote and spoke extensively on the topic of all truth being God's truth. Why is this statement important for us who are developing discernment? I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Uh, they are intended to have fairly obvious questions. I'm not trying to trick you, make fun of you, make a fool of you, anything like that. The answer should be obvious. In fact, the first answer is yes and the second is no. Okay, I'm going to make it real easy. So, is the Bible completely true? Yeah, it is. Is all that is true in the universe contained in the Bible? Now, you said no because I told you the answer. So some of you are going, I don't know. Isn't it? I don't know. Well, simple example. Two plus two is four. True? In the Bible? I don't think so. No! There you go. John 17, 39. Two plus two is four. No! The Bible is true. But the Bible is not the sole container of every truth in the universe. There is truth that can be discovered in places outside the Bible. Why make this observation? Because truth can be found in so many places, places we would not expect it. Get this, an atheist can speak truth. Hey, 
if an atheist says two plus two is four, we say, we don't say, no, it's not. You're not a Christian. That truth can come from anywhere, right? It really can. It doesn't matter if they despise God or Christianity, they've spoken truth. Two plus two is four. Now, here's the thing. For the biblically discerning person, they're always looking at every statement anyone says. They're always looking at any fact they find somewhere else in light of this, the ruler, the measuring stick. So they're always using this to determine, is what I just heard truth? So take one of the uh, several of the bold statements of our times, okay? You'll hear statements like, it is a scientific fact, or it is scientifically proven, or it is proven science, period, done, we don't have to think about it anymore. The non-biblical thinker has one of two responses. Get this. One, it has to be true. Science said it. Done. A non-biblical thinker will say, it has to be true. Science says it. And here's the other thing. A non-biblical thinker will say, it has to be false. Science said it. Both happen in our world. There is perhaps no place that has caused greater consternation over the past century than the creation-evolution debate and its relationship with the Bible. I'm increasingly amazed at the number of Christians who accept the theory of evolution with no biblical challenge whatsoever. They don't even, they don't even bring the Bible into account when they're thinking through what they're being given. Science said it, so it must be true. Mind you, it's the same science that told me at one point eggs were good for me, then told me eggs were bad for me, and now is telling me eggs were good for me again. It's the same science that told me that butter was bad for me, so they invented margarine, and now they're telling me margarine's going to kill me, so I better eat butter. All right, same science. And it's funny, in a few sentences, some of you have assumed my stance and you've shut me out. You think I'm one of those religious knuckle-dragging Neanderthals who doesn't believe in science and never, ever, ever allows any thought to come in. The other extreme is exemplified by the faith of my youth. My pastor denied the existence of dinosaurs. He said they're not there. The bones that they find, somebody planted those. They're, they're not true. They're not true. I remember a story he'd tell of a man who claimed he found a woolly mammoth. And they're out there with the shovels. They're digging. And some old geezer comes walking up. And he says, that's eh, not a woolly mammoth. Hey, you know, there was a circus here 30 years ago. And they buried an elephant right there. And that was, boom, done, over. Dinosaurs don't exist. That's it. It's over. The biblical thinker does not deny that the dinosaur exists. Nor does it assume that it proves evolution. They ask, how might that fit into the biblical narrative? How might it fit into what I see here? How does it fit? Let me give you another example. My family was wandering a mountaintop in Montana. It's one of our favorite mountains. We're about 6,000 feet up. And as we're going along the path, we come across these rocks. And I'm not kidding, this rock formation is full of seashells and other underwater creatures. And I'm looking at this. I mean, we are nowhere near a beach. A beach would have had to be pretty high for this to be sitting here, right? I'm looking at this, and I'm amazed. And, and as I'm looking at the fossils, I'm asking, how can this be? A biblical thinker says, this one's not tough for me. I've read Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. You know what? I'm blown away at the contortions that many in science will go through to explain that fossil apart from a flood. Why? Well, to accept the premise of a flood is to accept the premise that there might be a God. And so many will work overtime to disprove what seems to be fairly obvious because we do not like where it leads. 
A biblical mindset does not assume that it is true because science said it, nor does it deny that science is a source of truth. The problem is when we who claim this book as truth and as an authority over our lives write off the first 11 chapters of the book because they don't fit into our world's way of thinking. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First verse of the Bible. First sentence of the Bible. And we're already at war, right? We're already looking at that verse and going, I don't know. Not the way I understand it. I, I don't... If we struggle with the first verse, if we struggle with the first sentence, we will likely find it easy to write off other concepts in the Bible with which we do not agree. And before you know it, we have a Bible that's been ta- that the exacto knife has been taken to, and we're cutting out all the parts we don't like. We leave the nice parts, Jesus, manger, baby. We, that's nice, that's pretty. But other stuff, boom, that's gone. That doesn't fit with the way I think. All truth is God's truth, wherever truth may be found. And the Bible is the standard. It is the measuring stick by which we measure the truthfulness of all things. Let's move to the next thing that a biblically trained mind understands. So as time and training are coming together and maturity is growing, this is one thing we understand. Spiritual, quotes, spiritual does not always mean truth-filled or truthful. Just because something or someone slaps the label spiritual on it doesn't mean it's true. Does not necessarily mean it's true. So here is the irony. There's truth to be found in places outside the Bible, but sometimes the error is found inside of what people label spiritual. Spiritual is the favorite word of our times. It's, it's PC, it's politically correct. It's broad, it's expansive, it's inclusive, it feels so tolerant, it's kind of warm and fuzzy, it's nice. People slap the label spiritual on everything from the environmental movement to economic issues. It's, it's a spiritual issue. Most will have a bit of, a, of an allergic reaction to the word Christian. It seems narrow and restrictive and and expired, kind of out of date. But if you use the word spiritual, it just feels nice. Quite often the words spiritual and celebrity go hand in hand. Perhaps one of the most overt examples of the, the modern spirituality movement in America is this thing called Super Soul Sunday that, that Oprah sponsors. Well-meaning, I'm sure. But suffering greatly by comparison to the biblical standard. The Bible determines truth, not a celebrity. Now, some of you, some of you, you know, you've been, you're still awake. You're going, wait, Dennis. I thought you said all truth is God's truth. I did. Good job listening. You're doing well. In every junkyard, you can find some treasure. But there's also lots of junk. And just because the junk has the label spiritual on it doesn't mean it's spiritual. Doesn't mean it's right. Personally, I wander in a lot of spiritual junkyards. I do. If some of you knew what I read, you'd label me a heretic and start clicking your Bic lighter and finding some dry wood. You'd burn me at the stake, you know? But I have years of time and lots of training and the ability to smell the difference between a pile of junk and a hidden gem. You get that by approaching the junkyard, clinging tightly to the lamp. And if what you're hearing doesn't sound like what the lamp is showing you, then what you're hearing is wrong. I'm afraid too many of us get swept up in the cult of personality. I mean, some of you cannot even imagine I'd question the mighty O. How dare I do that? Please understand, I'm not just talking about her, I'm talking about me. 
just because you have the label church on us and I have the label pastor on me doesn't mean you swallow everything I say hook, line, and sinker. You compare what I say to what the Bible says. The Bible is the source of truth. And so we're always comparing, always listening, always wondering, just because somebody calls it spiritual, is it really of the spirit or not? Have you ever done a fantasy draft in sports, baseball, football, any of that? You ever done that? I'm literally doing one right now. I'm not kidding, while we're talking. My friend Chad in Michigan invited me to a, a fantasy baseball slow draft. We get 12 hours per pick which gives me plenty of time to call Brian and find out who I should be picking. I'm loving this. Drafts are funny. Some people cannot see beyond their favorite team or favorite player. They just can't. I mean, it doesn't matter if the guy has a broken leg flapping in the wind. It's like, that's my guy. I got to have him, you know? I got to admit, I still approach fantasy football looking. So Brett Favre going again? Sean Alexander making a comeback. These guys got me a championship in the past. Maybe they can do it again. Discernment is able to look beyond favorites to facts. And some of us can't look beyond our favorites to facts. We're just not able to go, so what if that's my favorite person, my favorite book, my favorite movie, my favorite whatever. What does the Bible say? What is truly true? I could, I could say more here. I think you get it. Whether it is a personality claiming to be spiritual, or a book, or a movie espousing spiritual themes. We need to have the discernment to know that the label spiritual is applied to lots of junkyards. There may be a treasure or two to be found in that junkyard, but on the whole, it's like an episode of American Pickers. Lots of junk just needs to be overlooked in order to get to the gem. Okay, I have two other onions that I've got to scrap in, scrape into the pot, and I've got to admit, I didn't get to the fourth one in the last sermon, so... I am going to talk New York fast right now. Next one. A biblically trained mind knows what is good. You know what is good. You just know. Uh, Micah 5, 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. You can know what is good. God has told you what is good. He has told you what is good. What is good? Well, for most of us, the quality of goodness is determined by our personal preference. Our experience, whatever, we, we decide what is good based on our style, our opinion, our taste. That is what we decide to be good. So if I were to ask, for example, is liver good? Uh, three people in the room would answer, raise their hands, and nobody else would. Popcorn, good. 95% of the room would, especially if it's well-buttered, no margarine. So, you know, I mean, we have, we have tastes that go along with these things, right? And one of the overarching premises of this series has been what? Practice indifference. When it comes to discernment, practice indifference. The bottom line is, we need to know that we all approach life with a personal agenda. There's a style, there's a taste, there's something that we like, something we prefer, and we tend to call that good, whether it's good or not, because that's what we like. And so we call it good. We need to remember to hold our agenda in abeyance in order to embrace the will of God. Not my will, but yours be done. We recognize that we have a will, a preference, an agenda, but we're willing to forego it to embrace what God says is good. That is true indifference. So I mentioned my friend Chad, baseball guy. I met him years ago at Green Lake. At that point, he was a young associate pastor at a church in Cadillac, Michigan. And uh, in, while I was uh, involved in a program with him, he moved to a church in California to be the, the senior pastor there and has since 
this past summer, moved back to the church where he started. So now he's the senior pastor where he was an associate pastor, where his wife grew up as a kid. He walks into this church, and um, it's kind of funny because he's walking into some of the things that, that he started years ago. So if you were to walk in their church right now, they feel a lot like where we were in 1996. Uh, they had two services going, one in the main church and one in a multi-purpose room. The one in the main church is doing all things traditional. The one in the multi-purpose room is doing all things contemporary. They're meeting at 10, 10 o'clock, both churches, separate plates. And he walks in now as a, as a mid-40 adult and says, what we have created is two churches meeting in the same building. And he's uncomfortable with that. And ironically, when he was an associate pastor, he was tasked with starting the contemporary service. So now he's looking at it going, how do we make this one church again? And so the way they've gone about making it one church is they've gone from two services back to one service, and they're doing traditional worship one week, and contemporary worship the next week, and con traditional worship the next week, and contemporary worship the next week. And they're just, this is, this is the approach that they've chosen to take in order to get everybody in the same room, and in order to kind of get everybody back to enjoying worshiping together. Now I'm going to guess the way this is going, all right? One group on a particular week is quite firm in their conviction. Old is good. If this hymnal was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. The other group, I'm guessing, on the other week, is holding firmly to their conviction. New is good. It's time to open the windows and let the fresh wind of the Spirit blow into this musty, stale cathedral. What does discernment say? Old can be good, and old can be bad. You know what discernment says? New can be good, and new can be bad. Both can happen. It can also be bad when your pages are out of order. Old is not good. New is not good. Good is good. Good is good. And that, that's the ability to look beyond my, my preference, my style, my agenda, and say what I'm after is what is good, not what I want. We've got to know the difference between the two. Some of us in this room have a propensity toward preserving. Others have an aspiration toward advancing. These are our preferences. These are our opinions. This is our agenda. Do you know well enough to know when it is his will and when it is your own? To know what is really good despite your personal preference? I wonder sometimes what it will be like when, when God reviews human history with us in heaven. I suspect when he gets to the 90s, talking about the American church, he's going to just kind of shake his head a little bit. He'll say something like, ah, oh, the worship wars. Pap, you were a veteran of that, weren't you? I'll shake my head, yes. And he's going to call out the generals and the majors and the lieutenants and the sergeants and the foot soldiers. He's going to point at one side and say, you were lobbing hymnals and organs at that side, claiming that old is good, and you... You were lobbing drumsticks and spotlights at that side, claiming that was good. You were going to battle over lit rooms and dark rooms, over loud and quiet, old, good, new, bad, old, bad, new, good. And he's going to say, old is not good. And they're going to be half the room that's going to go, told you. <laughs> and then God's going to say, new is not good. Good is good, he will say. And what is good, he will ask. 
that you wanted to worship God. That's for sure. We can't miss goodness because we're so stuck on our personal preference. And I use worship as an example, in part because it's safe around here. This is not a battle for us. But it's amazing to me, it's amazing to me that we will get so stuck on our preference that we miss out on the very good gift that God wants to give us. I'm trying to use my discernment here. Let's see real quick. Two minutes, three pages. Ah! All right, I'll have to podcast it or something. This is really good stuff. Brian, come on up. Ushers, go to the back. I thought I talked fast enough. Dry bummer. Well, anyway, it was really good. You should have been there. Um, <laughs> so our servers are coming to receive the offering every Sunday morning. If you've signed up for it, we send you an email, and it's called the links. So if you've not signed up for that, we'll show you how to in a moment here. But um, the links give you several literal links, places you can go to on your phone. In fact, if you've got a phone and you got the email, you can pull it up right now. Some of them are just linked to information stuff this week, so it's possible that you've never looked at the news events page on our website. Uh, worth clicking there to see what that looks like. One of the things you'll notice there is we, we always attach a fresh uh, copy of the folder of the week. So if you miss a week, you can go and get a copy of the folder. There's also two down on that list. Uh, if you were to go to the bottom part on the first page of the website or go to this link, you can send a prayer request along. And we, we share that generally with uh, either staff alone, if that's what you ask for, or with, with our prayer team, if you want. Uh, the second link offers you the chance to sign up for the, the follow-up ladies small group that goes along with the retreat that just happened that was awesome. And the final one gives you the opportunity to go to text to give. So there's nothing up here for students today, but whose son are you? Aloha. Holy cow. That's, yeah. You're, yeah. Looking, you're looking fantastic. I know, right? Buddy. Yeah, that stupid groundhog saw his shadow, which means like six more weeks of winter. Uh, I'm doing the opposite. I'm seeing sunshine and trying to will the warm weather here. So tonight at Revive, we're going to have a luau. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to it. Uh, so if you are a high schooler, you should go out, get yourself some Hawaiian garb. I have a bunch of these things, whatever. Uh, so uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. Again, we'll have uh, dinner tonight. There will be a lot of Hawaiian-themed games. It's going to be a really, really good time. Uh, and it's going to serve kind of as a celebration for, for our high schoolers uh, for the work that they did on Friday. We did a, a lot of uh, box packing. I was just asking Jared uh, how many boxes we packed, and he, he guessed that we were like in the 156 range. I, th I think that sounds right, right, Mike? Yeah, uh, so we, we packed 156 or so, 160 boxes filled with 36 meals each, uh, which are going to serve kids around the world who don't have meals on a daily basis, but uh, now they will. Uh, thanks, us. So again, yeah, really cool. That's, that's a huge testament. That's a huge testament to the kind of kids that we have uh, the whole time. You know, they, they kind of turn it into a game. Uh, you know, with making sure that, you know, we're, we're hacking and everybody's doing their own thing and rice is flying everywhere and people are burning their fingers trying to seal these bags. And uh, we actually worked so hard that one of our bag sealers, it's like this heated thing, 
we burnt out one of our bag sealers. Like, it, they couldn't use Woo. it the rest of the night. So, yeah, it was really <laughs> cool. It was a lot of fun. Uh, so, again, thanks to, again, we've got great students here. So, thanks to the students, everybody else who came and volunteered. Um, the, the freezes, we had Mike, we had Journey and Alan. Like, it, we had a lot of people, a lot of Southfielders come along with us, and it was just, it was, it was a really cool thing. So, thank you for that. Uh, and, again, tonight... We're going to get to celebrate a little bit. And, and to follow up with that, sometimes you wonder, like, the, the offerings that are brought in, where do they go? One of the organizations that we do financially support is uh, Feed My Starving Children. Yeah. So they received a, a $1,000 check from us recently to continue the, the good work that they're doing. Yeah, yeah. So we're grateful for that, really grateful for that. Um, okay, stay sitting for just a moment. You can stay there, too. Yeah. So number four, no virtue exists in isolation. This is one of the great uh, faults of our times. You know, we'll claim, for example, the word love. Well, love, if love's involved, then everything must be all right, no rules. No virtue exists in isolation. I, I kind of get a kick out of sometimes when a new believer reads through the Bible for the first time. They start in the Old Testament, you know, and God's like burning things and blowing things up and all kinds of stuff's happening. And they're watching Sodom and Gomorrah and they're watching all this stuff. And, and, then, they, and then they come to the Christmas story and then, it, they, you know, their observation is kind of like God relaxed. And, and, and outside of a little incident in Acts chapter 5 where he gets kind of hacked off of Ananias and Sapphira, he, he kind of mellows. And they, and they kind of look at it and go, I'm reading the Bible and it's almost like there are two gods. You know, there's this God that was in a really foul mood. And then there's kind of Grandpa God who's nice and, you know, hands out candy. And they kind of look at the two and, and, they, and they go, and I really like Grandpa God. And I'm not really crazy about, you know, Warlord God. So I'm going to stick with Grandpa God from here forward. Um, Grandpa God and Warlord God are the same God. They're both the same God. And you know what? We don't like that. We like simple. Boop. So we, we just want love. Or we just want, you know, whatever. Pick the virtue. Maybe, maybe something bad happened and you're really into justice, God, right now. You know, you're looking for lightning bolts and brimstone and all that. You want, you want some vengeance. It is spiritual maturity to start to realize that love has to be tempered with justice. It is spiritual maturity to realize that compassion and consequences go hand in hand. It is spiritual maturity to embrace mercy and at the same time realize that, that God does punish and that both go hand in hand. So as we grow in virtue, as we grow, as we're able to grow in spiritual maturity and discernment, we start to realize that it's not either or it's both and both are part of who god is and when you say i don't understand it that's okay neither do i you know what i mean that's who god is so you don't get to pick your favorite testament and say this is a god i like same god all right you can leave now you did great enjoy your day bye <laughs>